0: I saw this debate of us versus them. Us being a progressive, forward-thinking, in my case, young, green movement versus them being uh, this this voice that was hard to pin down that said taking action on climate change is bad for jobs and bad for the economy. I knew from my time working with small businesses in Massachusetts uh, that that just wasn't the case, that there's plenty of businesses that look at their carbon footprint Uh, ...as just as important as their community impact and their bottom line. Yet that's not the narrative that we hear.
1: Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources... ...a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people... ...and unleashing unlimited human potential... Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive, and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Bernice Miller-Travis.
2: Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancock's. My co-host, Fernice Miller-Travis, is off today. I want to start off by reminding folks about the second California Adaptation Forum. This event brings together over a thousand leaders, practitioners, and advocates to discuss, debate, and consider how we can most effectively respond to the impacts of climate change. The forum will take place September 7th and 8th in 2016 in Long Beach, California. Visit californiaadaptationforum.org to learn more. In episode number 24 of Infinite Earth Radio, we interviewed Joel MacHour and Mark Mickleby about their new book, The New Grand Strategy, Restoring America's Prosperity, Security, and Sustainability in the 21st Century. Just a quick reminder that you can win a free copy of the book by going to infiniteearthradio.com backslash strategy and entering the contest. But in the book, the authors talk about the role that business can play in leading the revitalization of our economy by focusing on sustainability, and our guest today is doing exactly that. Our guest today is Michael Green, the Executive Director of the Climate Action Business Association, or CABA. And since 2002, Michael has served as a representative to the United Nations, focusing on international climate science and policy. Michael, welcome. Welcome.
0: Hey, thank you so much for having me today. Uh, Really exciting to hear about uh, some of your previous conversations and some of the things coming up in December. I look forward to possibly making out to California for the adaptation forum.
2: Yeah. So, Michael, um, what is the Climate Action Business Association and what is its mission?
0: Climate Action Business Association is a Boston-based business group. We're focused on climate and energy policy, we work on policy here in the state, uh, in the city, uh, assisting with several of the administration's plans around climate adaptation and preparedness. And then we also work on national policy. We go down to D.C., bringing some of our business owners down uh, for various summits throughout the year. And then we also bring a small team to the U.N. climate negotiations each year as well
2: so the organization is uh, it's an association of, of small businesses and and the board is made up of business people how did the organization get started and how long has it been around
0: no, that's uh, that's exactly right and what happened was uh, I have a career prior to this of working in advocacy and as a climate activist and the more that I was involved in various movements globally whether it was here in Massachusetts or on the national level and even spending some time in the UK, I saw this debate of us versus them, us being a progressive forward thinking in my case, young green movement versus them being, uh, this, this voice that was hard to pin down. that said taking action on climate change is bad for jobs and bad for the economy. I knew from my time working with small businesses in Massachusetts uh, that that just wasn't the case, that there's plenty of businesses that look at their carbon footprint uh, as just as important as their community impact and their bottom line, yet that's not the narrative that we hear. Uh, I was able to team up with Susan Labandabar, who is a local CEO of a IT firm called Tech Networks of Boston, and they were the first business To the association. And we quickly got to about a dozen businesses in the first six months or a year and saw that there was a real need for this. So we developed, we spent about a year developing our programs and figuring out what exactly our niche and our role we wanted to play within this movement and then also what services and and products we wanted to offer the local business community. Since then, we've really been growing leaps and bounds spread across the state, and we're getting prepared to launch in other states across the country.
2: So, Michael, so how, how long have you been at creating Kaba? How long have you been working at this?
0: So, actually, excitingly enough, um, I believe tomorrow marks year four.
2: Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And so, tell us a little about your personal journey. Uh, you explained kind of how you started Kaba and how that all came to be, but... How did this kind of become your life's mission? How how did you personally come to this work?
0: Interesting question. My journey started actually up in the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. Growing up, I was just determined to either uh, work in the Forest Service or have some kind of career path that would allow me to spend all of my time outside and enjoying uh, the woods that I love around my house. And what ended up happening was I, my first career opportunity was working with the Bureau of Land Management as a backcountry ranger. I got stationed in southern Utah. I was looking for invasive tree species, looking for lost cattle, and spending a lot of time hiking around canyon country in, a, in the deserts there. And you know, with that much time on your hands, you begin to start to read a lot as well. And I really started to learn more about climate change and how it's affecting our planet. I remember seeing a map that said that the forests in upstate New York and the mountains that I loved would resemble something closer to the composition of uh, Georgia by the middle of, uh, of this century. And that really frightened me. That kind of made me realize that spending time out in the backcountry wasn't going to protect the place that I loved so dearly. So I left the Forest Service and actually took a 180 and went to work for Greenpeace. And over the next few years, I really got a crash course in organizing and activism, finding myself doing campaigns here in the U.S., spending time in the UK and in Geneva and I really got to learn more and more about what it the science about the activist side and everywhere I went it seemed to really point that business engagement would be something that is crucial to work on uh, in order to really take this movement and move it into a mainstream idea so that's how we got to to Kappa
2: Gotcha and so so fast forward, now, now Kaba's up, been running for four years. Can you just give us a basic summary of what Kaba does and, and how you actually uh, serve businesses?
0: Yeah, no, of course. So the organization has three main program areas. We focus on helping businesses with their internal sustainability, helping them understand the policy landscape and how policies are going to affect our environment, our climate and small businesses. And then we also work with them to bring them together as a community of shared valued CEOs and business leaders. Now, on the internal sustainability side, we've developed a web app. It allows a business to track its waste, water, energy and transportation usage. It kicks out a greenhouse gas footprint and then also allows the business to track that greenhouse gas footprint in comparison to business metrics that are slightly more normalized, like their full-time employees, square footage, fiscal goals. So they're able on a clear dashboard to see how their carbon footprint relates to their business, gro- their business growth. We like to think about it as kind of the quick books for sustainability. Now, when we get into the policy work, we find that as we're helping businesses with their internal sustainability, they're starting to learn more and more about the regulations, policies, incentives that they're taking advantage of, which leads them to wanting to be advocates and and learn more about that space. So here in the city, we're working on climate adaptation plan with the city of Boston. We're working on the state level with making Massachusetts the first state in the country to have a price on carbon Then nationally, we're focused on supporting the Obama administration with the Clean Power Plan, their new methane rules, and just released yesterday, their ambitious goals around clean energy. And then on international policy, we focus, of course, on uh, the fulfillment of the Paris Agreement. Now, with such a large scope of work on policy and internal sustainability, uh, there's a lot of best practices and opportunities for our businesses to learn from each other learn from experts within the career fields so we're constantly holding events to bring them together so that way they can learn from each other and also get the latest and greatest information into their hands it's interesting on bringing this community together because in a lot of a lot of ways they're siloed by industry uh, there's not a lot of opportunity for a health club and financial institutions and IT services and law firms to interact together. However, when they realize that they all have this shared value of wanting to take action on climate change, we're really able to bring them together and and get them the information they need to take action, all while creating a strong community.
2: Got it. I understand one of your uh, initiatives uh, coming up is something, uh, the acronym is BARS, B-A-R-S 2016. Could you tell us what that is and what that's all about?
0: So, yeah, the campaign is called Businesses Acting on Rising Seas, or BARS. And the goal of the campaign is to reach out to high-risk communities through their small businesses in order to give them the information and have them create programs and uh, communication in place in case there's extreme weather in their town or in case they uh, see sea level rise, high levels from everything from king tides to seasonal variation and how to respond to those things. Let me take a second to paint a picture for you guys. Here in New England, you know, it's actually not a hurricane that we're most worried about. It's our winter storms, our nor'easter. And what happens is, you know, the big storm rolls in. We sit in our house while the snow comes down outside. And after two or three days of being locked up inside, you finally walk out into your neighborhood. And the first thing that you notice is how quiet and how still everything is with the new you know, few feet of snow on top. And you start to shovel out and dig your way out and work your way down your street. And then halfway down uh, the neighborhood, you see a light on. And that light is the local coffee shop, the local corner store that was able to be open during the storm. And what you first reaction is, wow, how amazing that they're open. You go in, you grab a cup of coffee, you socialize briefly with the barista or the cashier. And when you go home, you have this new sense of, you know, revitalized energy. You, you know, had that connection, that contact. And you better bet for the small business it's important as well. You know, if they're spending downtime, that's up to $3,000 a day uh, that they're losing for having to be closed. That gets into, you know, their razor-thin margins and can really hurt their business if they have to be closed for a few days. Now, it's not just, you know, being able to stay open for your customers that's important, but we also saw in situations where entire communities have been flooded or been ravished by a storm, Having the small businesses to be able to stay open, they also can offer resiliency programs and other things to that community, such as health care. Maybe it's an opportunity to charge your phone to let your loved ones know that you're okay. There's a lot of ways that a business being able to stay open in a time of need can be a great service to its local neighborhood and community. So the goal of our campaign is to get the information, get the programs and things that need to be in place to guarantee that extra level of resiliency for these small business communities. So we actually have teams that are going door-to-door in these high-risk neighborhoods across the state, getting them the information, giving them steps that they can take, everything from know what your flood insurance is to understanding uh, how your employees want to communicate to each other whether or not they'll be able to make it to the store that day, just real basic steps that a business can take that'll actually go a long way and hopefully pay off for them in a time of need.
2: you frame that as kind of just kind of more of a generic emergency preparedness uh, catastrophic event preparedness, but you know the the notion of rising seas right so Is there a threat to the businesses in the Massachusetts area right now from from rising seas or or flooding?
0: So, yeah, of course, Massachusetts is at high risk to extreme weather and sea level rise going into the next 20, 30 years. We're already looking at the effects that we're going to have. A lot of the city of Boston was actually built on landfill. A majority of some of our largest uh, neighborhoods And you look at the Back Bay and essentially everything that's outside of Beacon Hill and parts of the South End are all at sea level and built on old saltwater marshes. These areas are super susceptible to flooding and sea level rise as we continue. And dangerously, they're being developed. We have GE and several large firms that are moving into these neighborhoods It's something that the city's taking into consideration with their new climate preparedness and climate resiliency programs, but something that the community that's not large corporations just doesn't have access to the information that they need. So getting the information to them is super important.
2: I have a colleague who recently wrote a paper about sea level changes in in the state of California Mm -hmm. and how Google's new headquarters is actually at risk or not necessarily headquarters, one of their buildings, one of their main buildings they recently Mm -hmm. built. How is it that GE is moving into a place where they're at risk of sea rising without really taking that into account?
0: Yeah, no, it's most certainly going to be a challenge for them looking into the future. I I find it slightly ironic that not only are they moving into that neighborhood, but they're one of the first buildings that is asking to have a helicopter port as well, um, a helipad. Uh, so I think that there there might be some, uh, some interesting thinking there, most certainly. It's something that the city is really starting to work to prioritize. They've done a lot of reports over the last two years looking at resiliency and uh, the building stock here in the city. And it's also something that the state has to consider as well. We have no statewide plan around climate adaptation and resiliency preparedness. And what we're seeing is in a lot of places where they don't collaborate around their green and gray infrastructure, you end up getting added erosion and flooding and challenges where you weren't predicting and weren't planning on. Uh, So there's also needs to be more diligence done on the state so that way, when we continue to lead as an innovation hub and attract more and more big businesses and corporations to our major cities here in Massachusetts, we're able to guarantee a better degree of certainty to them that their building and you know the future of that neighborhood isn't in jeopardy.
2: So, Michael, I, from reading looking at your website, my understanding is you have a you have some kind of guide that helps businesses outline an approach to decrease the risk of going out of business due to consequences of climate change. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah. So uh, I, I talked a little bit earlier that it's estimated that the average small business loses around $3,000 per day that they have to be closed. Small businesses also don't have the supply chains and the duplication that larger corporations might. Let me give an example if you are a large box store and your business is flooded, you're able to close that business down, you know, go through a restoration project, and all of the materials or products that you were selling, you most likely can source from either another store or back from uh, whatever the the manufacturing or supply chain that you have. Small businesses aren't as fortunate. They just can't pick up and relocate, right? So they're really forced and bound to their location. And it's not just their you know brick-and-mortar storefront, but it's also their community. If their community is flooded and people are forced to leave, most small businesses get a majority of their clientele uh, and customer base from within two or three miles of their storefront. So if people are leaving their community as well, it makes it very difficult for that business to survive going forward. And when a small business is forced to close, it's not just the, you know, the loss of that product or service to that community, it's also the loss of jobs, it's the loss of tax revenue, and also kind of the, the eroding of the fabric of that community as they have to move out. So when we talk about helping small businesses increase their resiliency so that way they have a fighting chance to stay open, we're quite deliberate in the decision-making we ask them to have, looking at their insurance, having them look at how to communicate with their staff and their employees, making sure that they don't have hazardous products in their basement or places that could be easily flooded making sure that they have backup for their customer and staff data. So that way, if the building is flooded, they're still able to reach out to folks. Very easy steps that a business can take, but would go a long way. So how can people learn more about Caba and Bars? Yeah, so definitely for both, you can go to our website and follow us on social media as well. You can find us at cabaus.org, dot sorg And then also stay attuned to our social media. For every business that we're out speaking with, we actually give them a little shout out so you can see all of the various, whether it's hair salons in East Boston or uh, mom and pop retails up in Gloucester. Uh, You can see all the folks that we're speaking with and uh, how we're engaging with them. The goal is to reach out to over 500 businesses in the next few weeks. So we'll be hard at work at that.
2: Fantastic. And are there resources on your website that will help small businesses start to think about climate change and what kind of steps they need to take in order to be resilient against uh, climate change?
0: Yeah, so all summer we'll be running a blog series looking into a little bit deeper into some of the steps that we're recommending for businesses. And then also we'll be announcing several events in which we'll be doing uh, real educational events where we can bring experts in to talk to the business community and those are open to small business owners across the state. You don't have to be a member to join us for one of those.
2: Fantastic. So the next, uh, we have three questions. We call the lightning round questions. We ask all of our guests. They're, they're designed to be kind of short answer questions, just kind of off the top of your head. Mm-hmm. So question number one is, if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to a smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be?
0: That's a great question. I think the piece that I would, that that leverage point that I would choose is for small businesses to not just prepare themselves, but also talk to their community more. There's a few businesses here in the city that actually have open forums where they talk about their planning, talk about the work that they're doing to become more sustainable with their customer base, and that's a great way to get information out to the public and create real relationships between that place of business and their customers.
2: That's great. And what, so the average listener who, you know, maybe is or is not a business person, but what one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future?
0: Right now, we're really getting at uh, some of the low-hanging fruit, looking at supporting energy efficiency and looking at transitioning slowly but surely to renewables. The one thing that I would ask that folks do is really look into putting a price on carbon and what that's going to mean for them as an individual, what that's going to mean for them as a business, and find ways to support action around carbon pricing that's happening in your local community, their state-level campaigns, and even several pieces of legislation that have been introduced nationally. We're going to need to create a market shift in order to transition our harder pieces of our economy to this new low carbon intensive way of thinking, and a price on carbon is going to be uh, one of the only ways we'll be able to do that.
2: So, Michael, if you're successful in the work that you're doing, what does uh, Massachusetts look like 30 years from now?
0: And 30 years from now, you know, we'll have seen a fair amount of sea level rise. We'll have seen probably at least uh, one catastrophic flooding event, and. My hope would be that in 30 years, we'll have really learned from those experiences as well as learn from groups like CABA and that the city of Boston and others are doing and be prepared for a rocky future ahead. We need to look at our green and gray infrastructure, looking at our salt marshes, looking at our boardwalks and our floodplains and really making sure that they're ready for the future. Um, So hopefully in 30, within the next 30 years, we'll have done that. And we're less concerned about the 30 years after that.
2: To be clear, uh, what I'm hearing is two things are going to happen. One is we need to get very aggressive about limiting carbon and reducing carbon. And in order to avoid things getting worse than we already know they're going to get. Yet we know that even if we do that, sea level is going to rise And that there are going to be more um, of these uh, storm events, these um, catastrophic storm events, and we've got to simultaneously prepare for that, right? So it's kind of both things have to happen over the next 30 years in a very aggressive fashion. Is Is that an accurate statement?
0: That's right on. And if you look at what uh, was discussed in the Paris climate negotiations back in December, there's a, a phrase that really captures this urgency and this need for action. And it was championed by small island states across the globe who said it's 1.5 to stay alive. And over the last five years, we've seemed to really latch onto this idea of two degrees change in Celsius is where we need to stay to keep this planet hospitable for humans to be able to survive. And what we're seeing is two degrees actually would even create too much change. It's 1.5 degrees, and these island states won't see as much flooding and the damages that we're anticipating. You have to understand, though, that we've already baked in about one degree or a little bit over one degree change that we're guaranteed to see in the future. So now is the time to act Whether it's putting a price on carbon, transitioning to renewables, and preparing our coastal communities, all of these things must happen, and they have to happen quick.
2: Michael, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today.
0: Hey, thank you so much uh, for having me, and keep up the great work. It's amazing to have uh, media outlets and folks such as yourself that are willing to share the work that's happening across this country and globally. Uh, thank you
2: And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio.
1: Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by SkiO in association with the local government commission. To learn more about SkiO, the local government commission, infinite earth radio guests or how you can make a difference in your community visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and twitter by following at infinite earth radio